please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 25. Hear God's word to us. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it, but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes." A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hi, Todd Mahar, eHarmony. How can I help you today? Hi, I can't seem to leave a wink for someone. I don't know, is my page broken? Do I, do I maybe have a broken page or? Oh, I've never heard of that, but okay. Uh, you're trying to use your eHarmony account for the first time? I am. Okay, uh, I'm looking at your profile. We have a pretty intricate matching algorithm that's what distinguishes us from other online dating services. Yeah, I like that. Actually, I'm just trying to leave a wink for one person, Cheryl Melhoff. She started in my division at work about a month ago, and I overheard her near the bagel saying she was on your site. Uh, okay, that's unique. But let me ask you, you left a lot of this stuff, like, like the been there, done that section. You left it blank. Yeah, I think I skipped it. Okay, well, you've got to help me out here, man. Don't skip stuff. 
Okay, well, I haven't really been anywhere noteworthy or mentionable. Have you, have you done anything noteworthy, mentionable? Hello? You still there? Can you hang on a second? Thought I smelled gas. Oh, I hope it's okay. I engineered a prosthesis for chips while I was sprinting down the stairwell. Little hip joint assembly with a drop ring lock and an anterior pelvic band. God, you're noteworthy. I just live by the ABCs. Adventurous, brave, creative. That's everything I want in a man. My man. Hey, my man, you still there? Hey. What, did you pass out or... No, I just, like, zoned out for a second. Oh, okay. Do you do that a lot? Uh... Have you done anything noteworthy or mentionable? You know, that is a thought-provoking question. When you start thinking about your own life. And honestly, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, it's one of my favorite movies. Not only because my wife, Allie, tells me that I have eerily the same imagination as Walter but also because it attempts to ask and so answer a question almost everyone in here has asked. And if you haven't asked it yet, you will ask it. And many of us at some point in our life feel dissatisfied with the answer we do discover. The question is, what is life for? What is life for? And maybe even what does it mean to be someone who's noteworthy or mentionable? The story, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, it centers in on Walter who, who's unnoticed in the back of a film room as he continues to inspect these film negatives for the iconic publication Life magazine. Over decades, they've captured story after story of noteworthy and mentionable human beings, but things change. Print has become outdated, which is another way of saying it's no longer sustainable. And as it comes to its final episode and it closes in before it closes its doors, the unthinkable happens. The final film negative, which is to produce the cover photo for the magazine, goes missing. And to make matters worse, Sean O'Connell, who's the photographer, who's worked with Walter for years, calls this his best life's work. It's the quintessence of life. And it's gone. <laughs> and so Walter finally stops relegating adventure just to his daydreams and lets it break into his reality. And he becomes the unforeseen hero of his own story as he chases his own quintessence, his own ideal life. Now, one thing that I think many of us like Walter tend to imagine is that our concepts of what it means to be noteworthy or what it means to be mentionable, they often occupy our daydreams. Way more often than we think they occupy our daytime. Because what do we hear through all these different mediums? We hear that life is for adventure. It's to have courage to go into the unknown. You know, it's all about the pyrotechnics and the thrill, the spark in a relationship, the adrenaline, the endorphins. To really live means you've experienced life to its limits, and it's there where you find your truest self. And listen, 
you know, there's something really attractive about all of that because in reality, there's something true in all of that. We are created with a desire for awe and wonder. We are called to courage. We want to all live life to the full. But there's something that's missing in this understanding of the world that's crucial. Without it, it actually doesn't make a world that's livable. Without this thing that's missing, this world lacks meaning. You see, this morning, if you're just longing for an excitement or, or an adventure, the poets have warned us time and again throughout history, and we've read plenty of biographies or seen plenty of movies that show that we'll always be left wanting. And some of us here this morning know that all too intimately, that that feeling of too much is still not enough. No job really satisfies your ambitions, so you go from one vocation to the next. No relationship really meets your desires for intimacy, not for long, and so you go from one person to the next. And you want more, and so you engage in these activities of chasing after more that slowly destroy you, and you even have a sense of understanding they're not the best thing for you, but you engage them more because you want more, and more of what you don't know, but more nonetheless. And then there are others of you this morning who are here and you're white-knuckling your way through your own adventure. You believed that the good life was really going to the extent of taking every opportunity and you're exhausted and you're overwhelmed by all these opportunities and you're crying out actually not for more but less. And you're engaging practices of escape that you know, once again, are destructive to you, but you feel like you've just got to catch your breath because you can't hold it the rest of your life. Even though you know these practices are destroying you, they're a slight way to breathe. And listen this morning, what we find is both that more and that less that so often just occupies our daydreams. And when Jesus, he comes answering the question, what is life for? What is my life for. He doesn't come inviting us to be this adventurer in our own independent movie. Instead, what he does is he invites us to be ambassadors in an all-encompassing mission that's not just made up of the thrills, but gives meaning even to the mundane of the everyday. As we continue to walk through Matthew's account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, what is called the gospel we get to listen in as Jesus guides his earliest followers, same people like you and I, on how the Christian life is a mission. The Christian life is a mission that requires thoughtful resolve. The Christian life is a mission that requires thoughtful resolve. It's not based on a whim, but it's based upon him and what he's done. It's not some short-lived strategy, but it stretches all the way into eternity. And it's here in his mission we find our truest selves. It's actually here we find meaning. And ironically enough, it's here where adventure finds us. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, which if you're using one of our community Bibles is found on page number 815. When you get there, I think what's so fascinating right from the get-go of Matthew chapter 10 in these first five verses is that Jesus calls these 12 ordinary, seemingly random folks. I mean, they're brothers, they're fishermen, they're tax collectors, they're zealots. 
One's even a betrayer. And that's what makes up this motley crew. The one thing they all have in common is that they've said yes when Jesus called them. And what we see in verse 5, as we heard read, it's these 12, this motley crew that Jesus sent out. And, and I don't want us to miss this. Right here, we're going to jump right in. I don't want us to miss this because even though Jesus is doing something very unique at this point in time with what are called the apostles, which literally means sent ones, simultaneously when Matthew is writing this, he's not writing it for the 12. He's writing it for us, the church. That's because also he's laying out a paradigm for how God carries out his mission with his people in the world. And this is what we learn right out the gate is that Jesus always sends those he calls. Jesus always sends those he calls. The ordinary, often flawed, always broken people, people like you and me, and he calls us to himself and then he sends us out. If you're here this morning and you've answered the call to follow Jesus, you can't stay where you are. Or at the very least, following Jesus means you can't stay how you are, where you are. And this sentness, Jesus begins to detail out in the following verses as he explains to these folks, these 12 ordinary folks, what it means to be sent ones. And as you follow through this passage, Jesus basically says this, I want you to go, okay, this is what it means to be sent. I want you to go and I want you to do what you've seen me do. You're going to go with my authority and you're going to go in my name and act as if you were me. You're going to raise people from the dead. You're going to heal the sick. You're going to cleanse lepers. You're going to engage with social pariahs. You're going to cast out demons, and you're going to do it all while you're proclaiming my message. What I have been proclaiming, as we saw all the way back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, which is Jesus' stump speech, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I want you to imagine you're there. You're one of those 12. And Jesus is looking at you. And he says, you know all those things you've seen me do, the things that you thought were only possible in your daydreams? It's your turn. Go and do likewise. If you have embraced the call to follow Jesus, he has sent you. And it's your turn. Not to act according to your fancy, but to go and do likewise. Now, so often when we hear this passage and we hear that Jesus, you know, sends all those that he calls, so many times we have a particular lens or a particular vocation in mind. And some of you might be thinking, okay, is the decision card underneath my chair to now become a pastor or missionary to Africa? You know, like, but no, that's not what I'm talking about. And I don't think that's what the broader mission of what Jesus is seeking to lay out here. It couldn't be further from what Jesus is seeking to exclusively say. Instead, I want you to hear this this morning. Whether you're a child and you're learning the art of generous play, whether you're a customer service representative and you're working nine to five, whether you're an accountant with somehow tax day being moved to tomorrow, sorry, um, you're working seven to seven to balance the books. Maybe you're a student who studies all hours of the night. Maybe just maybe you're a stay-at-home parent who focuses their energies on developing this little human being and you never really get to clock out. Jesus has called you to send you there, 
to have the good news of his king and his kingdom on your lips. The very new life you've received in the gospel now is to infuse the community, the sphere of influence, and where you find yourself, where you no longer shun the social pariahs, but you chase them to bring them life and joy. And you challenge demonic forces, whether they be structural or individual, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And that's not some first century slogan. That is a reality for followers of Jesus who have been sent on mission. You see, the Christian life is a mission for all of life. And Jesus always sends those he calls. Always. Ordinary people called to an extraordinary mission that more often than not engages our ordinary lives. And, and I think that's where the rub is <laughs> because ordinary life turns into busy life and the busy life always comes with heavy bills and the everyday battles are what slowly wear us down and it's the debilitating weakness of depression that slowly wears us out. And we can begin to ask the question, Jesus always sends those he calls, really? And we can find in the midst of the ordinary that we've learned to be settled rather than sent. We've come to become a part of the furniture rather than called to a drastic mission that changes the very landscape of our communities. And listen, I get it, you know. As a pastor, I think sometimes people think that I wake up dreaming about the mission and go into bed dreaming about the mission. I'm always dreaming, I guess. Um, well, I hate to break it to you, and I know it's going to ruin it for some people, but it's the reality of things. There are plenty of times, yeah, throughout the week, whether it be 9 to 5, 7 to 7, weird hours, you know, focusing on the organizational mission of the church, whether it be thinking through strategy, writing a sermon, engaging in counseling, yes. But then I can go home in the evening and completely forget that Jesus has sent me on a mission too. And I can just let life happen, just like anyone else. And slowly I can find myself being settled. Shouting, you know, the mission cry, but my life itself as an individual has become settled. And I think that's a question we need to ask ourselves this morning. A question you need to ask your heart is, does my life look sent or settled? Does my life look sent or settled? And, and listen, okay, you may be sitting there as I would if, if I were saying this um, and listening. This is getting really confusing. Um, <clears throat> and you're saying, okay, Gabe, sure. Okay, if I'm meant to be sent, what's the difference? What does it really look like? How, how does the difference portray itself in my life to being settled versus being sent? When I pull up to the job site, when I sit down at my desk, when my kids wake me up three times in the middle of the night, what does it really look like to be sent rather than settled? And I want to look at three aspects of what it means to have a life that embraces the sentness on mission that Jesus himself actually displays here for his apostles. Broader principles that he brings to contextualization for the first century apostles that actually become paradigm for us as the people of God today, okay? So here's the first one, to be thinking through, does my life look sent or settled? First, being sent integrates every part of your life as part of the mission. Being sent integrates every part of life as part of the mission. Another way of saying this is life is mission, not his mission is a part of my life. Life is mission, even the mundane, even the ordinary, even the 
annoying aspects of life, not his mission is a part of my life. You see this even here in the disciples. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I want you to go into your neighborhoods, go to your neighbors and then the neighboring towns, just proclaiming my message and that's it. He doesn't say to the disciples, hey, I want you to go to your neighbors. I want you to go to your town. I don't want you to go to these neighboring towns and just do really good things and bring healing. Every aspect of their life, what they say and what they do is now to reflect the mission of God and Christ where he has sent them. Settling for anything less is just that, settling rather than being sent. Another component when asking yourself, does my life look sent or settled is being sent invites, or invites full investment in the mission. Invites full investment in the mission. Generosity has always been at the core of fueling Jesus' mission. What we heard read for us this morning is that these early disciples, they weren't even allowed to go with a money belt, which is kind of weird, okay? Hey, I want you to go, and I don't want you to have any money, and then I want you to mooch off of people. <laughs> That's how I read it. Sorry, it's not what actually is going on there. But Jesus says, I want you to go, and the way you're going to survive is actually off the generosity of others that you're ministering to, those who have embraced your message and actually are going to support the, the work of the kingdom. And what that does then, and there's a wider framework here, when we're sent, it reframes the question. When you're sent, you actually ask in this part of your life, because every part of your life is a part of the mission, what does the mission need? What does the mission need? But being settled means you ask the question, what can I spare? What can I spare? Being sent means I'm looking at this scenario and, and what, what, is this, what does this need? What does the mission need? But if you're settled, you're looking at yourself first and you're looking at how this mission is just a part of your life and you say, well, what can I spare for this part of my life? What question are you asking of yourself in that part of your life, although every part of your life is a part of the mission? And then thirdly, does my life look sent or settled? Well, being sent, it always involves strategy on mission. And there is some weird stuff going on in this passage, okay, at first blush. When you're, when you're listening to Jesus, he says here in verse 6 that the, the disciples are only supposed to go to the people of Israel. Don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles. Just go to Israel, and then you get down to verse 18, and then he says, well, when you're before the Gentiles, when you're before kings and rulers who don't acknowledge what God has done throughout history and what I, God is doing right now through me, then Jesus tells them, when you're going into these towns, I want you to find a house, and, and I want you to decipher whether it's worthy or not, whether they're embracing the message and then stay there. If they're not worthy, then I want you to brush your shoulders off, you know, or wipe the dust off your feet and walk away. What's going on here? This is really weird and very culturally distant from us. And there's a lot of theological history as to what is happening here. First, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. You see, he's the promised one out of God's chosen people, the one that the law and the prophets, that the nation of Israel has been given to steward. And so of all people in the first century who are to be anticipating the Son of God, it is the people of Israel. And yet Jesus says, even still, not everyone's going to embrace what God is doing in me and in this coming kingdom. 
So when you go to these towns, I want you to proclaim the message. I do want you to enact the message. Bring about this incoming, inbreaking kingdom with all of my authority and my name's sake. And if they reject you, I want you to shake the dust, which is an ancient Near Eastern practice very common. A pious Jew, when they were leaving a Gentile or pagan town, as a way of utter rejection and disassociation, would shake the dust off of their body as a way of saying, I don't even associate with the dust of this town. But now Jesus says it has nothing to do with Jew, Gentile. It has nothing to do with race relations, and it has everything to do with what I'm doing in Jesus. Jesus has become the line of demarcation, and now we have a whole new unified people centered in Christ, and he is the one who determines and becomes the defining marker of who are the people of God or not. What an amazing image. Shake the dust. There's a lot of various components, and we could spend actually all afternoon unpacking the theology of how God has worked through Israel for the good of the world. We see this back with Father Abraham in Genesis and the initial promise that through him he would bring a blessing to the world, but we won't today. Instead, what we need to understand is that when Jesus is enacting his mission, he's going about it in a very strategic way. He's looking for inroads in which the gospel will be embraced most easily and quickly and actually then will go out to others. There's a strategy. He's looking for inroads. And if you're here this morning and you're in your area of influence, where God has sent you, and you're not thinking through what are some inroads to the gospel? What are some avenues in which this inbreaking kingdom can actually bring transformation? Then you're living a settled life rather than a sent life. So what about you this morning? As you look at your life, does every part of your life fit as a part of the mission? Are you fully invested in the mission? And are you strategically looking for inroads? Does your life, does your life look sent or settled? And that's not an easy question to answer. And I would encourage you this week as you engage community groups, in the midst of that, ask yourselves, what does that look like in your sphere of influence, your vocation, your job, your community? And begin to unpack how that can really transform the way you live and the way that Jesus has sent you. Because listen, how you answer that is going to impact very intensely how you approach everything else Jesus has to say here. Because when you go all in on the mission and you stop just being a, a spectator and actually become a spokesperson for the mission, you begin to see that Jesus not only always sends those he calls, but he always sends us into opposition. And that word always is the sticky one, isn't it? <laughs> Look at chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus tells this ordinary bunch of guys, behold, really pay attention to this. Really listen, guys, as I'm sending you out, really listen. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And don't breeze past this. Sheep, stupid, very, very unable to protect themselves, Look really like great food. I love the a rack of lamb, okay? And then you've got, they're going, they're going in the midst of wolves, cunning, hunters, bloodthirsty, ready to devour. I'm sending you like sheep in the midst of wolves. Follow me. Get out of here. <laughs> Listen to what he says. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 
And then he goes on to detail how they're going to be flogged in the synagogues. Their skin will be filleted off their backs because they associate with Jesus. They'll be brought before rulers and kings to bring testimony before they are put to death for the gospel. Family members will hate them, Jesus says, because in a culture, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, family was everything. Without your family, it felt like you had died a death. And Jesus is saying, because you're associating with me, some of your family are going to hate you for this. You're going to go into some towns, and they're going to rally together, and they're going to seek to cut you down. And when that happens, I want you to get out of that town, go to the next town, and do it again. <laughs> do it again. Wait, wait, what? Jesus, I thought we had all of your authority. I thought we were going in your name. And now you're saying we have to anticipate opposition. Yes. Jesus even goes so far as to say in verse 22, you will be hated by all, not by those wackos over there. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. That doesn't mean everybody's going to hate you. If everyone hates you, that's on you, okay? <clears throat> Let's just be clear. But, but there are some people, because you associate with Jesus, that they will actually be focused on cutting you down. Because you're called now on a mission that Jesus sends us on to actually challenge evil and demonic forces, whether they be structural or individual. And no matter what culture you find yourself in, you could be in Asia and a shame and honor culture where family is still a heightened reality. You could be here in the 21st century modern culture of America where we find our primary identity in our work and coworkers and our vocational influence. It doesn't matter your age, your relationship status, your gender, your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter about your sexual orientation because in all of these things, challenging the culture here it's going to feel offensive because that culture is going to feel as if you're attacking its very source of power, its very source of security, its very identity, or maybe even the framework of how everyday life happens. And that's because you are. Following Jesus is highly offensive, mainly because Jesus is offensive. And Jesus is pretty straightforward. Remember, why does he say his followers are hated? It's not because they're not enough like him. It's because they have his name emblem, emblemed on them. Everything they do in his name, it brings a stigma. It challenges, and no one likes a meddler. I think that raises a question that maybe all of us are asking, or at least I was asking. It's like, why, why is Jesus so offensive? What gives? Well, let's talk about this, okay? For starters, following Jesus is an all-or-nothing affair. It's an all-or-nothing affair. He's not some moral teacher who says, hey, I'm going to give you a couple really good ideas, and when you go have coffee, and you figure out which ones are for you, okay? No. Instead, what we so often do is we, we, we scour the landscape of worldviews, and we can say, I like this about Buddhism. Oh, I like that perspective from Baha'i. I maybe like these couple gods out of Hinduism and the wider framework. And then we come to Jesus, and we say, oh, I like this forgiveness deal and this whole resurrection bit. But don't talk to me about integrity in the workplace. Don't talk to me about how this informs my sexuality. I, I like the way we talk about, hey, treating others the way you'd want to be treated, but... 
but don't talk to me about fill in the blank. And we negotiate everything in life. We justify almost everything in life. But the only way to approach Jesus is wholehearted submission and surrender. There's not an in-between. And then there's this whole deal that Jesus just appears judgmental. If you read the text at all, who those who walked and talked with Jesus, who spent time with Jesus, who saw the resurrected Jesus and wrote it down in the first century say about Jesus rather than our 21st century perspective of Jesus. Because when you're sitting at the lunch table, that sounds like school. I don't, when you're at work and you're at lunch, yeah, there you go. When you're at work and you're at lunch and you say, hey, I'm broken and Jesus saved me, you know, you're not going to get a nasty email from a coworker. The moment everybody begins to cringe is when you say or even imply you are too. Because Jesus has no framework with just coming in and giving some mere self-improvement, sprucing up your life with an extra vase of flowers. Instead, he's come to make dead people live. What we've already seen is that Jesus says, I'm the great physician. I've come for the sick to make them whole, to heal them, and then they won't come to me unless they recognize that they are sick. And this is why when you follow the story of 11 out of the 12 of these guys, one, Judas the betrayer, falls by his own hand. But 11 out of these guys die either a martyr's death for the gospel or are exiled. And that's not because they dropped the ball. That's because they were that true to what Jesus had called them to do. This is why when we look the globe over, still brothers and sisters of Christ are losing their lives because they associate themselves with Jesus. Parents are losing children. Children are losing parents, being pushed out of their lands for his namesake. Following Jesus, it always goes against the grain, and it will chafe your skin. But the question I asked myself as I was sitting and I was thinking about this passage, okay, but what does that mean for us here in 21st century Kansas City, Missouri, or Kansas City, Kansas, as we're thinking about what it actually means to live out the gospel here? And when we face opposition, whether it be from family, friends, whether it be structural injustices in our communities, or even just a work environment, this is where Jesus says, be wise as serpents, and innocent as doves. So in the first century, serpents, um, they, they were symbolically a representation of prudence, shrewdness, wisdom, cunning. And doves, being urbanites, are just smaller pigeons. Okay. <laughs> Seriously, I looked it up. Scientifically, they're just a little bit smaller pigeons that are white. So there you go. But they represent innocence and gentleness. And what Jesus says is you need both of these pictures you have to have them in tension because if you just have the snakes, then slowly you become manipulative. You lose the innocence. If you just are a dove, then that leads to naivete and you're caught in traps that you should have never been near. You see, our greatest danger, I think, when we experience opposition in whatever form, it isn't apathy. I think our greatest danger as we experience opposition is actually living into one of these two extremes rather than the tension. And they often line up so much with our personalities 
Some of you just tend to be a little snake-like. No offense, you know who you are. <clears throat> and you tend to be a little manipulative. You're really wise and you can navigate situations, but it gets a little messy when you lean a little too much in that snake-likeness. And some of you are just a little too dove-like, a little naive. You never speak up. You never press in. And what Jesus says is you need both. You need this tension. You need to be caught between the strike of a snake and the fly of a dove. Right here in this image. If you go to the end of Crown Center here, just east of the World War I Museum, on Main Street, you'll find an art installation called the Triple Crown. International artist Kenneth Snelson, he created this piece using poles and cables, and it's held together by tension, not by nuts and bolts. And he actually dubbed this concept tensegrity, <laughs> which is a combination of tension and structural integrity. Pretty obvious. There it is. But as soon as you lose the tension, it falls apart. And the same is true here. The same is true here. Now, the thing about tension, and the reason none of us like it, is because it's tense. <laughs> it's not comfortable. And you go into a conversation, we like walking out feeling squeaky clean and feeling really good. How often have you said, well, I felt a peace about it? Well, come on. You know, really terrible people have done really terrible things, and they felt great peace about it. <laughs> Just because you feel good about something isn't the litmus test whether it's helpful and flourishing. So let's stop it right there. Not to say that you won't have a peace at times. But more often than not, when you're living into this tension, not that you'll have anxiety, but you'll begin to have healthy reflection before you enter into conversation and after. Did I have the right tone there? Did, did I create good space? Was it good timing? Did I listen long enough? Before I spoke, tension, cunning but innocent. And I want to stop here and I want us to ask a question of ourselves, each and every one of us, because this is so crucial to understanding and sitting in this tension. Am I willing to be uncomfortable? Am I willing to be uncomfortable? Because if you're not willing to be uncomfortable, you'll never be able to embrace what Jesus is talking about here. Because he's, he says, look, some people aren't going to like you. And I don't really like that because I like to be liked. This is the way it is. It doesn't mean you have to be a jerk. But let Jesus be Jesus and stay true to his message. And guaranteed you will offend some people. Guaranteed. So what does this uncomfortable tension look like in our everyday life? Well... <clears throat> I'm a podcast listener. I don't know how many of you are. And I stumbled upon what was actually captured in a podcast called Startup. Startup, it's a really intriguing podcast about how one idea eventually becomes a company. And it's started by Alex Bloomberg. So if you're an NPR nerd like me, he was the one who started Planet Money and he was a part of This American Life, okay? And he started <laughs> Startup. Um, and it became an overarching company called Gimlet Media. It's got 500,000 listeners and continues to grow and in influence. And on the 19th episode called Diversity Report, Alex Bloomberg begins to scour his employees and notices that as they continue to blossom and they're hiring more and more people, they're continually monotonous in the kind of people they're hiring. So he brings together 
the small handful of racial minorities and those who are part of the LGBT community, and he begins to ask them questions. What does it look like to cultivate an environment where people can still hold to their beliefs and yet still work and flourish together? Thoughtful question. And he's having this conversation in episode 19 with Chris, who's an openly gay gentleman, and they're asking about this wider understanding of diversity, and then they finally come to the realization that they're not very religiously diverse. And this is Alex's words, not mine. He says, the staff on a whole is politically liberal, cosmopolitan-leaning, you know, the sort of Brooklyn-based type. And how they thought they didn't have any evangelicals on staff. <laughs> so I'm listening in. I'm like, ooh, um, where's this going? Um, they toyed around even with the idea if they should cut evangelicals out of their strategic plan altogether. Are we even reaching evangelicals? Do we match up? Is it wise to just cut our losses and move forward for a particular market segment? And it's a very transparent podcast, and so he reaches out, Alex does, to his producer, Eric. And he's like, hey, Eric, did we miss anything? And Eric knocks on the door. He's like, can I have a mic? So he comes and he sits down, and Eric says, you know I'm a Christian, right? <laughs> I'm really in now. <clears throat> I'm like, what's going to happen here? What's, am I going to be ashamed of this podcast in a minute? You know, um, and he says, I'm actually even an evangelical. I go to church most Sundays. I'm in a life group. And half of us listen to Startup. <laughs> and I want you to, I'm about to play you a clip from that podcast. It's about a minute long. So don't look for anything on the screen. It's going to be audio. So just to prepare you for that. But I want you to listen to what Alex asks next and how Eric responds. So let's listen. How many people in the office know that you go to church every Sunday? Do you think? Probably a handful. Do you ever feel strange telling people? No less than three times did I like stand up from my desk outside with my headphones on listening in, think about knocking on the door, and then like, no, 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 I'll sit back down. Uh -huh. You know, when you said, I don't know if we have any evangelicals on staff or anybody you can, I almost like walked around almost to the window here so you could see me, thought about <laughs> waving, I'm like, no, 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 not right, yeah. not right, not right. I guess there's always a tinge of discomfort. Like, there's always a little bit of discomfort when it comes up. And what is that discomfort? Are you worried about, like, incurring judgment in some way or another? Is that something that you're, that you're worried about? I guess there's a fear about not being taken seriously. Uh-huh. To some extent. Because you believe in something that, like, some very smart people discount as complete hokum, you know? That you are therefore associated with that, mm -hmm. you know? As a Christian, for me at least, there's a, a feeling of responsibility to be open about your faith and to not cower when it's easier to cower because it's much easier to deny Christ. You know, it's uh -huh. much more comfortable. Right. And they continue down this conversation. It's so intriguing to listen in on. If you get the margin, I'd encourage you to check it out. Once again, it's Startup the episode 19 diversity report, and they continue down the conversation. And Chris, the gentleman who associates himself with the LGBT community, even makes an astonishing claim. He says, in our work environment, Eric, I think that actually you're at greater risk of receiving harsh criticism and being mistreated for your faith than I am for my lifestyle. And I'm, I'm listening. I'm just amazed as we're, they're having this dialogue about what it means to actually live within a pluralistic society and how do we treat one another and navigate the discomfort of times 
of working and living next to people who don't share the same belief structures as each other. But I want to zero in specifically on what Eric says, because his transparency is really astounding when he says, there's always a tinge of discomfort. And it's so much easier to deny Christ. And if you've ever been in a work environment, in a relationship, in a scenario where admitting that you're a Christian comes with it the fear of losing influence, the fear of maybe costing a long-term promotion, or maybe just creating now awkwardness in relationship, you know exactly what he's talking about. And you don't have to be all t- you know, high and mighty and say, oh, I never feel uncomfortable. I'm sold out. You know, it's great. Okay, sure. Admit it's uncomfortable. It's not easy. Admit it. Own that. It's okay. And then ask yourself, am I willing to be uncomfortable when those times come? Am I willing to be uncomfortable to live between the doves and the snakes rather than sitting on the extremes? And before I move on just ever so quickly, I know some of your minds are going and you're thinking, okay, Gabe, give me something practical here. Um, How do I grow in being thoughtful? How do I grow in wisdom? Well, if you want to grow in, in your thoughtfulness, you have to cultivate and invest in your thought life. If you want to find wisdom, you got to go where it's found. And that means you have to be digging into God's word daily. You've got to make that a discipline. And the tyranny of the urgent, it's really difficult to make that a habit, but I encourage you to do it. Also, be involved in a community group. This today's one of your last opportunities for a little bit, so do it. Get engaged in a community group. Let other people challenge your blind spots and help you become a more thoughtful person centered on Christ and his mission. And make Sundays a priority. Because listen, in those three categories, individually, smaller community, and the church gathered, that's where we do our training off the spot to be prepared to be thoughtfully resolved on the spot in your vocations Monday through Friday. This is where we continually be sharpened for our mission to where Jesus has sent each and every one of you strategically to carry out his mission. So don't miss that. The Christian life is a mission that requires thoughtful resolve. And here, the good news in all of this is that you don't have to be some solo entrepreneur trying to navigate your way forward. Yes, Jesus always sends those he calls. Yes, he always sends us into opposition. But he never sends you to do something he himself hasn't already done. He never sends you to go anywhere that he himself has not gone first. And I want us to remember that this morning. Jesus went there first. Jesus went there first, and he went there for you. For God so loved the world. The apostle John says in John chapter 3, verse 16, that he sent his one and only son, and he came. <laughs> fully God, fully man, to do what we could never do, and then invite us somehow to follow him. And not only did he leave the comfort of heaven to enter the discomfort of a broken world with broken humanity and to be born in a backyard barn, to be a refugee even from governmental authorities in his earliest of days, and to be a carpenter for a majority of his life when he began his public ministry. He was ridiculed by the Pharisees and the scribes. He was rejected by Israel to the point of them shouting, crucify him. And he was abandoned by those who were closest to him, his disciples. And yet even still, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that he might save his people from their sins. And he, and he, he was so thoughtfully resolved in his tentious mission 
And finally, when he hung on the cross, he cried, it is finished. And three days later, when he rose again, we got but a foretaste on where this mission is heading. A renewal of all things where every tear will be wiped from our eye. Every nightmare will be turned into a fairy tale for those who are his. And all wrongs will be made right. This is what God can do. And this is what he invites us to now join him to be a part of. What's your life for? Whose mission are you on? The Christian life is a mission that requires thoughtful resolve. So stop trying to chase being an adventurer in your own independent movie and learn to embrace being an ambassador for an all-encompassing mission that gives meaning to the mundane and purpose to the quick thrills of life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we want to say thank you that you've invited us and then you've sent us. What great condescension that you've actually involved us in your mission. What glorious humility and kindness that we get to be involved in the good work of your mission in the various vocations to which you've called us. May you expand our imaginations May you give us a greater zeal for the gospel proclaimed and enacted. And may you give us the tension that is appropriate to live between snakes and doves. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver our brothers and sisters across the world from evil and the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever and ever.